Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a little known fact about the Tudor monarchs and their counselors. They used magic and the occult, and they feared magic. And the occult. For at this time of great religious change and great religious faith, belief in magic was practically orthodox and certainly widespread. Today's guest argues that belief in magic is inseparable from the political histories of England and Scotland, and that it should come as no surprise that magic and politics are so closely linked in history, for both are concerned with the exercise of power. My guest today is Dr. Francis Young. He took his doctorate at the University of Cambridge as a Fellow of the Royal Historical Society and teaches at Oxford University's Department for Continuing Education. He's also the author and co-editor of some 18 books. And the most relevant for today are the book he published in 2022, Magic in Merlin's Realm, A History of Occult Politics in Britain, and his previous work, Magic as a Political Crime in Medieval and Early Modern England, a history of sorcery and treason. Dr. Young, thank you so much for making the time to join me. I've been watching your career via Twitter for a long time, so I'm particularly pleased to have the chance to speak to you. It's lovely to be speaking on this podcast. We're going to be talking today about what has been termed political sorcery, so the use and fear of magic by Tudor monarchs and their counsellors. Tell me, to start with, about the ways in which belief in magic and its role in politics hasn't been taken that seriously by historians and why you think that is. Yes, I think it's fair to say that belief in magic has generally been regarded by historians as almost a distraction from the real story of political intrigue or political infighting or factions or whatever. And it's been seen in a functional way. It's been seen as something that people made up, allegations that people brought forward when they really wanted to stain somebody's reputation and discredit them. And all of that is true. It certainly is true that magic was something which it was a difficult stain to expunge once the accusation had been made. But I think that what's been lacking in a lot of historians' work is a recognition that people actually believed this stuff. Now, the extent to which they believed it is something which I think we can discuss. But people did really believe it and they took it seriously. And it therefore had an impact on the way that they lived their lives. And it had an impact on politics. And as you've just suggested there, you say in your book that 
thinking about magic in politics can cause us, we moderns, as we like to think of ourselves, such intellectual discomfort. And that the two normal ways of handling this material are either sort of to try and explain it away or to accept it at face value. And you suggest both of those approaches are problematic. How then should we approach (laughs) this stuff? I think that we need to approach these as realities that people experience in the sense that people genuinely experience them as realities. Now, whether we think that they're real or not is to a certain extent irrelevant here, because we're dealing with what were the forces, what were the mental attitudes and beliefs that actually affected the way that people behaved in the past. And yes, as you say, I think there's a danger of treating these as just something that was made up in order to manipulate people. And there's also a danger of becoming totally credulous and saying, it was all true, and you know, there really were witches and all this kind of thing. We need to somehow steer a middle course between those two things. And I think that the way I would do that is through the idea of cultural construction, that something which experienced as real can come into being through powerful cultural beliefs that are not merely individual choices of belief, but something which a society expects of you. So that's the approach that I'd adopt. That's a really helpful way of thinking of it. So just before we go ahead, I also thought it might be useful to think of a working definition of the occult in this period, because I know it doesn't mean exactly what it means today. Yeah, it's a very difficult question to answer. I think any historian who deals with these questions about the occult or magic or supernatural belief runs up against these questions of definition. The way that I would define the occult is any science, as it would then have been understood, if you like, a domain of knowledge, which was in some sense hidden or concealed, which of course is the original meaning of that word, occult. So something which required a special degree of skill or some kind of innate ability that was mysterious in order to handle it. And so in the domain of the occult, in this book, Magic in Merlin's Realm, I've included magic, as perhaps we would understand it. So things like the conjuration of spirits and grimoires and spells and those sort of things. But I've also included things that we might now consider to be magic. We might think of magical, like astrology and alchemy, but which people at that time didn't consider to be part of magic. But they did consider to be things that required a special degree of skill. And certainly the same people who became very skilled in alchemy and astrology, often because they were mathematicians or had some kind of proto-scientific knowledge, were often accused of being involved in magic in some way. So there is this wider field, I think, we can extend our understanding of the occult to. That's really interesting. So we've got a definition of magic that encompasses things that they didn't think were magical and encompasses things that we don't think are magical. We're kind of stretching between the two, really. I was really struck by the example in your book of Giordano Bruno, towards the end of the period we're going to be discussing, that his prodigious feats of memory were understood to be magic. Tell us a bit about that. Giordano Bruno develops this new form of which he himself would certainly have regarded as magical, we might, looking back at it, think of it as a form of artificial memory. So he came up with this idea that you could expand the capacity of your memory by developing what we might call memory palaces. So in other words, using these kind of imagined spaces in order to locate symbols that would guide you then to the information that you were trying to recall. And there are people who do this today with similar kind of techniques. But what Bruno added was this magical element by making sure that these symbols 
were symbols drawn from the traditions of astral magic. And those are forms of magic going right the way back to the Arabic world, to the early Middle Ages. And traditionally, that kind of astral magic had been done by engraving these symbols onto metal discs and then placing them in strategic places with the hope of drawing down astrological forces from the heavens. But what Bruno does is he says, well, actually, impress those sigils, those important symbolic images in your mind. And therefore, you turn your mind into a kind of magical machine. It's very weird. I think it's quite hard for us to get our heads around. But he is effectively arguing for a form of magic that's within the mind only. Now, if we go back to the beginning, you relate the idea of magic to what you describe as the Tudor dynasty's obsession with the Arthurian myth. Can you explain the link? Theorian obsession is deeply rooted in the Tudor dynasty, in its understanding of its own Welsh origins. I think most noble Welsh families of this era would have made the claim that they were in some way descended from King Arthur. But of course, this becomes immensely significant once Henry Tudor is making a bid for that throne. And of course, he's got his Beaufort ancestry to rely on. But also, if you can add to that, this element of the Arthurian it takes his claim into the realm of the mythical and the mystical. And so early on, he adopts this symbol of the red dragon, which becomes very much associated with King Arthur, because it's there in the story, Geoffrey of Monmouth's story of Merlin Ambrosius, that Merlin Ambrosius sees these two dragons fighting under King Vortigern's castle, one white and one red, and the red one represents the Britons, and therefore it's this potent emblem. And it comes to be heraldically very important to Tudors, it becomes a supporter of the Tudor coat of arms, and there's also the elements of Arthurian myth being recreated, like Henry VIII in the 1520s, he has the round table effectively created for himself at Winchester Castle. You have jousts with strongly Arthurian themes, it's all bound up with the cult of chivalry, which is very heavily revived during Henry VIII's early reign. And so it's certainly something that's always there. But then John Dee is the person who really brings that Arthurian legacy into its own by presenting himself as Merlin, becoming this new Merlin as an advisor to Queen Elizabeth. Yes, and I certainly want to spend quite a lot of time on Dee. But before we get there, I was struck also with the case of William Stapleton, this man from Norfolk, who is said to have made accusations against Thomas Wolsey. So still among the early Tudor kings, this assumption that people of power are using magic. Tell me about that case. So Stapleton is actually a monk of St. Bennet's Abbey in Norfolk. He's a Benedictine monk, but he wants to get rid of his monastic orders. He wants to just become an ordinary priest because he's decided he doesn't want to live in the monastery anymore. But in order to obtain a dispensation from his monastic orders, he has to pay for it. And so he therefore decides that with a group of other men, he's going to go hunting for treasure. And this is something very popular in Henry VIII's reign. A lot of people believe that if they conjure spirits, they might be able to find treasure. He conjures these spirits, and one of the spirits says to Stapleton, or through a medium, through one of these magicians who's claiming to conjure spirit, I can't serve you because actually I'm already serving the Lord Cardinal. In other words, the spirit is bound to Wolsey. Stapleton spreads this about and says, oh, the Cardinal's using magic, and he is forced to apologise. He's dragged before the Duke of Norfolk and he's forced to apologise to the Cardinal. But this is something which is widely spread. People say that Wolsey has made a magical ring. They say that Wolsey has bewitched the wits of the king. And this is a rumour that often spreads about powerful figures. It's a rumour that spreads about Cromwell as well, that they are people who have somehow got their control over the king, their position at court, by magical means. And of course, it's said about Anne Boleyn. 
But it's clearly the sense of the inexplicable. I mean, that comes up a lot in the witchcraft cases, that if you've got to explain something that feels inexplicable, in this case, how somebody from a lowly status has become so powerful, then magic is a neat way of explaining that, I suppose. Yes, absolutely. And I think in a world that is deeply unstable and in a process of flux and where your position at court is constantly turning with the wheel of fortune and people are constantly falling, when somebody does manage to stay in power, people will say, that's supernatural. How could you possibly have survived in the Tudor court? Therefore, you must be using some kind of magic. Under Henry VIII, we have the first statute passed against magic in 1542. Certain types of magic became felonies, punishable by death, where they'd previously been under the authority of the church courts. Why do you think that was? I think it's mainly because the regime is beginning to take back a lot of the power that previously had been delegated to the church. So I think it's a wariness of the church courts, whether the church really is fit for purpose in order to pursue the aims that the state now expects. We have this move towards the 1542 Conjuration Act because church courts, the penalties that they can hand down are not particularly severe by the standards of the time. They are public penance, ostracization by your community, which, you know, are pretty bad things in the 16th century, but they're not felony punished by death. And so the Conjuration Act is including specifically certain kinds of magic. And one of those forms of magic is magical harm. So attempts to kill people by magic. Now, killing the king by magic always been punishable by death because that was governed by the Treason Act. But the idea that killing anyone by magic might be punishable by death, harming people by magic, but also magical treasure hunting. And so one of the things that's included in the 1542 Act, in fact, it's mentioned twice, is people pulling down crosses, wayside crosses, and trying to find treasure buried under them. So it seems to be an attempt to protect treasure trove, but also an attempt to protect these landmarks in the landscape and along roads. You're absolutely right. And my understanding of Henry VIII and his relationship with faith absolutely is that it's about removing the power of the papal church and by extension, the clergy. And the more I examine his faith, the more I think he's obviously so far from Protestantism. But it really is this kind of stripped down version of Catholicism that takes away power given to anyone else apart from himself, really, as far as I understand it. So it makes sense that the Magic Act follows that. And you actually say in your book, it's a wonderful line, you say the Reformation weaponized the accusation of magic. What do you mean by that? Yes, well, I think that there's a parallel movement that goes alongside the Reformation, but can't be obviously causally linked in any straightforward or simplistic way to the Reformation, whereby these allegations of magic suddenly become deadly. They become something which you can employ against someone to destroy them, whether metaphorically or literally by ending someone's life. And this is something which is not simplistically linked to the Reformation because it starts before. It starts in the 15th century. We see it in the Rhineland, for example, these kind of deadly witch hunts and witch trials. There's a kind of reformation of magic, a stripping down and a simplification of what people thought magic was. So I think when you look at the Middle Ages, people had a range of views of what magic might be or how serious it was or how much of a problem it was. Church courts sometimes treated it rather frivolously, really. It wasn't something that was regarded as a particularly serious offence. But suddenly in the 16th century in England, you get this new idea that magic is an offence against the law of God, that it is idolatry, that it's apostasy, that it's a rejection of the Christian faith, that it's a form of heresy, all of these ideas. 
And it becomes something which is very damaging to deploy against people. It becomes a stain which is difficult to expunge, and it becomes something which is judicially punishable, that it becomes a felony. I suppose much of that is because of this association of magic with the devil, and this is a period in which people's attention is much more focused on the devil than it has been before because of the Reformation. I, by coincidence, went to a fascinating seminar yesterday with Dr. Alex Guider and Dr. George Southcombe, who were talking about their work on the 1563 statute and what happened during the reign of Edward when Henry VIII's act was repealed. And they'd been studying the Reformatio Legum Ecclesiasticarum, which was the sort of proposed law under Edward that would have been much harsher on witchcraft than 1563. And I think what's really interesting is that we have that connection that you've just made between heresy and apostasy and witchcraft. And yet in England, unusually by comparison to elsewhere in Europe, it's decided that witches will be hanged for their crime which suggests that it's a kind of treason or a normal felony, as opposed to being burnt, which would be what happened if it were heresy. And apparently if this code of Edwards had come into place, we would be seeing a situation where it was much more like Scotland and things were much more fierce in England and things were seen much more as heresy. But even in your work, you make it very clear that the Edwardian regime had the potential to be very fierce on magic. I was struck by what you said about John Hooper, Bishop of Gloucester, and his ideas on astrology, which were quite out of step with the time. Yes, that's right. Hooper thought that astrology was all bad. He thought it was a form of idolatry and apostasy and offence against the laws of God, which at the time, virtually all Christians, whether Reformed or Catholic, would have accepted some aspects of astrology as okay, that you could astrologically determine what was the best time for a coronation, for example. But yeah, certainly there was pressure from the bishops in Edward's reign to have this revision of canon law, the Reformatio Legium Ecclesiasticarum, but it actually doesn't happen. The new canons don't appear until 1604, which is, of course, James's reign. By then, they're much less concerned with clamping down on magic and things like that because there are other laws that are unconnected to the church that deal with that. And so, yes, we could have ended up, as you say, with a situation where people accused of witchcraft in the church courts would have been handed over to the secular arm were burning very much like they were in Scotland, in France, or in those countries where you had that punishment. But yes, burning is very much more a punishment that is associated with heresy, it's associated with infractions against the church. But the way that witchcraft came to be conceptualized in England, certainly after the 1563 Act, was as a social nuisance within the community, rather than something which was a major threat to the state. And this is one of the key features, I think, of the way that witchcraft develops in England. It does not develop into something which is seen, generally speaking, in most cases, as a threat to the state, in stark contrast to the way it's perceived in Scotland. And in fact, if we're thinking about magic in the state, which is kind of our focus today, it could be argued that magic is being deployed by the state. A line from your book that struck me was that for Elizabeth I, the projection of a personal image as a quasi-magical figure was central to her reign. Yes, absolutely. I think you can find lots of positive ways in which Tudors do make use of occult symbolism. And Elizabeth is perhaps the most famous example of that. The Tudor rose itself is arguably a kind of occult symbol in that you've got this image that represents secrecy. And yeah, Elizabeth, obviously, she's portrayed as the fairy queen. So at the accession day tilts in 1570, 
her knights bow down and kneel to her or worship her. In fact, that's the term that's used. And speak of her as a fairy queen. She's sometimes even referred to as a goddess. Giordano Bruno refers to her as a goddess. And the symbolism that she uses, symbolism like the phoenix, like the pelican, symbolism of eyes. Famously, she's portrayed with covered in eyes that represent secret insight into occult wisdom. And Elizabeth herself, we know, practiced alchemy or at least dabbled in it. She had her own alchemical laboratory close to her chambers. There's a sense in which Elizabeth is interested in the potential of alchemy. She certainly is interested in the financial potential of it. She's more interested in that, for example, than in some of the things that John Dee brings forward and these ideas that he wants her to take forward. She's yeah, much more focused on the financial aspect of it, I think. Certainly, the idea that occult knowledge can have positive implications for the monarchy is not lost on Elizabeth. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how Codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race, I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This obsession with alchemy is fascinating, isn't it? And I know that Professor Glyn Parry, my former colleague, has done lots of work on this as well. Just this idea that Elizabeth thought that this magical method of essentially being able to print money, I suppose, was really worth pursuing is interesting. How did it manifest itself? What did she do? It wasn't just Elizabeth. It was also Cecil. Cecil, in one way, is the real mover in this. And probably his obsession with alchemy rubbed off on Elizabeth to some extent. If somebody approached and said, I think I might have the secret to lost the stone, however ludicrous the claim the person might be making, Cecil would give them a head start, give them a laboratory in the tower, tell them you've got a certain amount of time in which I'd like you to try and produce some money, have a go. And when they failed to succeed, and there was this guy called Gilbert de Lannoy, and he strings this out for years. And when he fails to succeed, Cecil thinks, oh, he must be pocketing the money that he's made. He must be pocketing the gold. It doesn't seem to cross his mind that actually Delanoy might be stringing him along and not telling him the truth. But also Edward Kelly. Now, Edward Kelly is a really fascinating and very disreputable figure. He is John Dee's medium, who essentially fills John Dee's head with all these ideas about getting messages from angels and so forth, but then runs off to Bohemia. And Elizabeth tries to lure Kelly back to England, because in Bohemia, there's this rumour that Kelly has discovered the Philosopher's Stone at the court of Rudolf II, and is now able to create gold at will. And in many ways, these ideas of like infinite gold, of being able to create gold, they also reflect what was going on in the real world, which was, of course, the discovery of the new world and the potential of limitless wealth that was going on there. So I think you can't disentangle the regime's obsession with alchemy and the obsession with exploration and the new world. In other words, it gives potentially to the Elizabethan regime something equal to what the Spanish are finding in the Americas. It's all bound up with foreign policy and that sense of threat during these years, the Armada and the attempted Armadas after that. That's really interesting because, of course, it makes it such a sort of practical real world problem. You need alchemy in order to solve this foreign policy problem you've got. Oh, absolutely. It might seem very pie in the sky to us, but for them, it was an urgent need. Elizabeth was always short of money and always trying to find these kind of cost effective ways to counter Spain's ambitions. And yeah, alchemy is a natural kind of line to go down to see because people genuinely believe that this could be possible. And it's not just men involved in alchemy, is it? I didn't know this before I read your book, but there was a woman, at least one named woman that we know about involved in this practice. Yes, that's right. Frankwell. And she is yeah, Elizabeth's personal alchemist. And there are other women alchemists later on in the 17th century. You get the extraordinary figure of Mary Parish, who acts as an alchemist for Charles II. So yes, there was a tradition of female alchemy going right the way back, in fact, to Nicholas Flamel's wife in the 14th century, that she was parent of the wife of Nicholas Flamel, who some people think might actually have been the one who really was investigating the Philosopher's Stone at a higher level than Nicholas Flamel himself was. And she certainly had a reputation within traditions of alchemy as being a great female alchemist. So yes, it certainly was something that was pursued by men and women. Some wonderful names to conjure with there. Tell me a bit more about John Dee's magical practice. Dee is the figure who really towers as the sort of the colossus of 16th century English magic. 
And a lot of that is down to his posthumous reputation, because he himself, during his lifetime, consistently denied that he was a conjurer. When people accused him of being a conjurer of raising spirits, he said, no, I do not do that. I am a mathematician. I am an astrologer. I am anything but a magician. Now, in the 17th century, it became clear when Elias Ashmole discovered these manuscripts that had been lost, which were these diaries that record his sessions in which he was scrying. He was looking into a crystal with his medium, with Edward Kelly. And he was indeed claiming to be communicating with angels and spirits. So that posthumous reputation has obviously affected the way that we look at D, that people maybe didn't look at D in that way at the time. But D sees himself as an astrological advisor to Elizabeth. For example, he advises on the date of her coronation and says, what is the best date for that? He knew Elizabeth before she was queen. So he has an established relationship with Elizabeth's coterie, if you like, with her circle, with people like Cecil, who are close to Elizabeth in Mary's reign. And he becomes an occasional advisor to Elizabeth on matters occult. He himself sees his advice as absolutely essential to the Queen, whether the Queen herself regarded the advice as quite as important as he thought it was, is an open question. But they have a series of important interviews, important encounters where Dee shares his ideas with Elizabeth. Now, some of these ideas seem to have stuck. Others were less influential. For example, Dee tries to convince Elizabeth that she has these extraordinary hereditary rights derived from King Arthur to the New World and even to Castile and Leon, that she should be ruling Spain and therefore she should be ruling the Spanish possessions in the New World. He tries to convince her that there are these rocks located in Newfoundland, which contain infinite quantities of silver, and therefore she should try and recover them. He tries to convince her that she should be claiming control over the Netherlands, which is one of the things that is rather more influential in that, in her intervention in the Dutch Revolt. But he also helps her with magical threats. So in 1578, for example, these effigies are discovered in a barn in Islington, and they look a lot like Elizabeth and Cecil. And therefore, there's this suspicion that maybe a malevolent magician is using effigy magic, creating wax effigies, putting pins in them in order to destroy Elizabeth and other members of the Privy Council. And this is when Elizabeth is in progress. She's actually in Norwich at the time when this is happening. And he is summoned to ride through the night and come to Norwich and try to find some way to extinguish this magic. And he never says exactly, although I have speculated as what it might be that he did. But Elizabeth at the time is ill, and that's because she's suffering from abscesses in her teeth. But it's thought that is caused by the black magic, if you like. And yes, he is credited with saving the queen, but not for long, because it's soon discovered that actually these effigies were nothing to do with the queen, they were actually to do with love magic. And so some juror in London had been creating these. And so it turns out to be a bit of a damp squid. But certainly it's an exciting interlude. I find Dee's involvement in creating this idea that England had a right to the new world, the British Empire, as he coins it, fascinating, especially if we start to think it might be the result of what he thought was angel conjuring. Yes, indeed. He did come up with that phrase, British Empire. Although, of course, it's rooted in earlier Tudor ideas. It's rooted in the Act in the Strength of Appeals of 1534, which has this preamble, this realm of England is an empire, with the meaning, of course, not of what we would understand as an empire of being a series of colonial possessions, but an empire in the sense that it is entirely independent of the power of the Pope and that the king is entirely sovereign and exercises the highest form of sovereignty like the Holy Roman Emperor. 
But certainly, yeah, these ideas that Elizabeth is somehow an apocalyptic world queen, that she is a fulfillment of prophecies that go back to the medieval mystic Joachim of Fiore, that somehow she is going to fulfill these fantasies of global queen who will bring in the millennium, who will bring in the coming of Christ and the end of time. These are all things that are there in the background to these thought. And the British Empire is very much an apocalyptic project. Now, it's very much the case that calling someone a wizard or a magician at this time could be a great slur. And I was struck by your thinking about how difficult it is to know whether magic was practiced in the past and because of this sort of layer of smears and slurs over the top of it. But a couple of people that we're very familiar with from Elizabeth's court were accused of being magicians, weren't they? Can you talk through how it was used against one's enemies? Yes, you have high profile trials, which happen from time to time, where people are accused of using magic. And sometimes instruments of magic will be brought forward in order to show the court that the person is guilty. But then the trouble is that evidence was then destroyed because instruments of magic were perceived as being evil and therefore they were destroyed. And therefore we don't have a very great record of exactly what these people were doing. But a lot of the time, certainly in 1581, you have this act which is passed, which makes it illegal specifically to draw up the Queen's horoscope. And a lot of these activities that people were accused of were probably of an astrological nature. But astrology, because it required this particular knowledge of how to draw figures, in other words, how to draw astronomical diagrams, astrological diagrams, that looked a lot like magical sigils, the kind of things that you found in grimoires, especially to the untrained eye. You got this idea that if somebody is capable of astrology, therefore they must be capable of magic. Therefore, we can say that if somebody has been practicing astrology, well, they've probably also been practicing magic let's just say that they are. And so I think in a lot of cases, people probably were doing something. There's often no smoke without fire. And so people might well have been trying to find out the future with astrology, which in the kind of the chaotic Tudor court, where you don't know from one day to the next, what the king or the queen is going to decide, how their whims are going to change, what your position is going to be. You want some kind of handle on the future. You want to understand what's going to happen by whatever means you can lay your hands on. But if you're discovered, it could easily be turned against you and it can turn into these accusations. But in some cases, the accusations are clearly purely scurrilous. This accusation of witchcraft is just thrown in with no particular supporting evidence to it. It's this idea that if somebody is guilty of one terrible crime, so in Anne Boleyn's case, she's accused of incest, then surely they must be guilty of every other crime. You do get this idea of a kind of unity of the vice that's a dark mirror image of the unity of the virtues in the 16th century that if somebody has done something terrible, therefore they must have done other terrible things. Lord Hungerford is another example. Lord Hungerford is accused of sexual crimes, but he's also accused of magic, almost as if, let's just say that he's also guilty, but let's throw that one in, because if he is acting against nature in these sexual crimes, he's accused of, therefore, he must also be the kind of man who would also practice black magic. So it does sometimes take that form. And it's interesting to see that it's used by the Spanish, it seems, against Sir Francis Drake. And in that pamphlet or book, Leicester's Commonwealth, it's used against Leicester, Robert Dudley. Magic can be deployed, it seems, to insult many people of quite high rank. Yes, that's right. It's even deployed against Elizabeth herself. So Robert Parsons, the Jesuit leader, who's a long-term foe of Elizabeth, at the time of her death, he makes this allegation that one of her ladies-in-waiting saw her walk through a wall 
and appear in a room where she couldn't possibly be, therefore she must be a witch. And the implication then is that she's a witch because her mother was a witch, because that's a, a story that's spread by Catholics who are opposed to Elizabeth and trying to portray Elizabeth the bastard and so forth. It can be deployed against anyone. It's deployed against Lester. It's something with Drake's case. It's turned around on its head because the Spanish say, oh, Drake is a wizard. He must be a necromancer because he keeps trapping our ships. His ships go so fast. He manages to destroy all our fleet with his fire ships. But Drake seems to embrace that idea. And certainly it's embraced in folklore with things like Drake's drum. So the magical drum, if it's beaten, then Drake will come back and save England. And Drake, I think, embraces that idea that he's got these magical powers. Yes, because it makes him more terrifying to his enemies. That makes sense. Though he himself actually accuses somebody of sorcery. So it's not something he's embracing in practice, but it's something that he's happy to have you know, circulating around him to make him seem more terrifying. And finally then, why do you think magic, if so present throughout the history of Tudor court politics, has been absent from our histories of Tudor politics? There's a certain degree of embarrassment with dealing with beliefs that we find strange. And I think that the average historian who is trained to study the Tudor period may not necessarily be particularly focused on supernatural belief. But I think when we look at the way in which historiography has advanced, Certainly in the last 50 years, I think historiography has moved towards a recognition of the importance of religious belief when it comes to the Tudor period. There was a time when you would have historians saying that the Reformation wasn't really about religion, it was about political power. I think very few people now would make such a bold claim. I think most historians would accept people really did have sincerely held religious beliefs to a greater or lesser degree, and religion really did matter. And I think you'd sound absurd if you said anything against that now. But I think we need to move to the same approach when it comes to other beliefs that we might find even stranger and even more outlandish. Because there isn't necessarily a clear division between supernatural beliefs and religious beliefs. In some ways, it's all connected. Certainly, anti-magical polemics are intrinsically bound up with Reformation polemic, portrayals of Catholicism as being no better than magic, and so forth. So there is a close link there with the religious polemics of the Reformation. But I think also these things are not necessarily separable in an easy way from medical history. So if you're looking at medical history, you will find things that we might consider to be magical. You'll find that bound up with practitioners who we might consider to be magicians. And intellectual history generally, or even art history. So if you're approaching the Elizabethan period and looking at Elizabeth's court art, it's very difficult to do that unless you're looking for evidence of occult belief that's there. So occult belief is something which can't be separated out as this kind of bolt-on thing that's going kind to of add it to everything else that we know about the Tudor period. I think it's there at the heart of it in many ways, both in a positive and in a negative way. And that can be very paradoxical. You mentioned the paradox of Drake, <laughs> that he simultaneously accuses people of sorcery and is himself thought of to be a wizard-like figure. And I think that's true of Tudor kingship, Tudor queenship, that it's something which in and of itself is magical. And yet, it's also part of its purpose is to stamp down on magic and to uphold the laws of God and therefore to ensure that people are not transgressing through black magic. It's complex and it's intertwined, but I think it has to be considered as part of the way that we approach the Tudor work. Well, thank you so much for giving us this primer and starting us off on that journey of thinking about it. If anyone wants to find out more, your book, Magic in Merlin's Realm, is a very good place to start. And 
In fact, you've written many different books about magic and politics in this period. So look up Dr. Young's work and you will feast your minds on this interrelationship between magic and sorcery and politics at the Tudor court. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher, Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify, And please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.